0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc.
1: Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc. And I'm here today with Eilet Fishback, who is a professor at University of Chicago, Graduate School of Business, the Booth School, and also the author of this book right here, Get It Done, Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation. Now, I guess I should have said the young science of motivation because it is a relatively young science. And I suppose we could say it started out with behavioralism, but we've come such a long way. And in this book, you describe a number of pieces of that science. In particular, you talk about goal selection, goal achievement, goal juggling, and, and so forth. But What I find really interesting about the book is that you emphasize how people, in many ways, we kind of manipulate ourselves, right? So, you know, in behavioral economics, we talk about how people are prone to all of these fallacies and biases and make all these mistakes. But we sometimes forget that people are aware of them. They're aware of their own quirks, and they sometimes kind of leverage these quirks. And in your book, you really are very explicit about how you can cultivate the landscape of motivation that you have within to better achieve your goals. That's the aspect of the book I found really fascinating. So welcome, Ayelet.
0: Thanks for having me, Greg. And thanks for already talking about the doer and, and the planner and how they interact. And uh, you're already a uh, in. I'm curious to know where our conversation is going to take us from here.
1: I remember an example of this from my colleagues where they studied folks who went to the gym and you know they seem to overpay for their gym membership. If you look at it, based on how many times they would go to the gym. And half the people, when they look at that, they say, oh yeah, these people are stupid. They're paying $20 a visit when they could just pay $10 a visit. And then the other half of the people say, no, 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 this is actually quite clever because what they're doing is they're converting the marginal cost of going to the gym to zero and thereby giving themselves a little extra boost. And I always wonder, why do some people systematically fall on one side of that debate and others seem to fall on the other? You sort of understand both of those positions, and I don't think you have a dog in that fight. I think some people are aware of these things and and some people aren't.
0: A few things here. I don't think that awareness is often a critical variable here. Uh, The the question should be whether people are doing something that is adaptive uh, for them, that serves their uh, goals. And, And I think that as a field, we are probably too quickly to say that there is a mistake. We like to highlight people's mistakes. And often what we refer to as a mistake is quite adaptive. When people set deadlines that are uh, unrealistic, well, it could be a mistake, it could be a planning fallacy, it could also be a way to motivate yourself. And often we are As a field, as academics, too quick to call it a fallacy or or bias and kind of neglect the fact that the early deadline was a motivational tool, that the pre-commitment meant to uh, motivate someone to go to the gym. And maybe it has failed. Okay, Maybe the person discovers by the end of the year that uh, they only went three times and that meant that they paid hundreds of dollars for each time that they went for the gym. Uh, But maybe the reason that they go to the gym is that they are more stingy than lazy, in which case this strategy works.
1: I think the way you start the book is you say that sometimes the probability of achieving a goal is affected at the outset based on how you define the goal or how you think about the goal. And that when people at the, I guess the classic case is at the very beginning of the year when people are making their New Year's resolutions. If your New Year's resolution is too vague, then you're probably going to get less far down the goal than if you have very precise objectives. When I was reading about a lot of this, sometimes you describe this in terms of individuals and their goal achievement. But because I teach management, I'm always thinking, yeah, but this is also true for when employers are trying to get employees to do things and also when parents are trying to get kids to do something tell us a bit more about goal formulation and how important is it that you set the goals initially from the very beginning in a way that increases the likelihood of you getting there
0: So let me first say that I wrote a book thinking about how people can use the science of motivation to motivate themselves, but admittedly, most of the science is on how to motivate others. Okay, so most of the science is on managers motivating employees, uh, educators uh, motivating students, uh, parents motivating their uh, children, it's often where we go. Now, it's not everything. We do have research on self control, which is how people motivate themselves. So, th- there is this part, uh, but it's not where we went as a as science, as, as a field over the last 20 years. Saying that, there is no reason that people cannot apply these lessons to themselves in the sense that we can operate on ourselves the same way that we operate on on someone else okay if, if I want my 10 uh, year old uh, to wake up in the morning I open the curtain and he's not going to sleep in a, a sunny room okay it's easier to sleep in a dark room okay if I want to wake up in the morning by myself then I, I set an alarm clock because it's Harder to sleep in a noisy room than a quiet room. Uh, It's a trivial example, but I'm basically using the same principle to motivate someone else as I uh, used to uh, motivate uh, myself. And now you're asking about how to best set a goal. And again, I would say it's the same for setting a goal for others and for yourself. And there are a few principles. We want the goal to be enticing. To be something that we aspire to achieve that seems more like a goal and less like a choice. The problem with New Year's resolution is that we often plan to be a different person that is going to do what's important for her and not what she finds pleasurable, not what she's excited about. But the person we are is pursuing goals that are exciting and less goals that seem like a chore, that, that are not exciting. And so the goal should be exciting. It should have a, uh, ideally some specific target, Okay, so some numbers that defines how much and how soon. In general approach, uh, do goals are better than do not goals. Avoidance goals are good in the sense that they seem urgent. Approach goals are good in the long run, okay? the goals that we can persist on. Uh, intrinsic motivation is, uh, is a big thing, okay? So we're uh, feeling motivated by doing and not necessarily only by achieving. Now, we set a goal because we want to achieve it, not because it is pleasant to pursue. We set a goal to you know, finish an MBA degree and not to uh, eat more ice cream. But the extent to which we are enthusiastic at the moment that it feels good, that predicts adherence much more than how important is the goal in the long run. And so I'm touching just uh, several principles in in goal setting, and I didn't even get to incentives.
1: I think of motivation as overlapping with willpower, or what people used to call self-control. Ancient Greeks would spend a lot of time talking about this. Later in the book, you talk about self-control, but are these different mechanisms when we think about approach and avoidance? Isn't it the same force that we're dipping into when we're thinking about powering through to achieve something when you don't really want to or forcing yourself not to do something when you really want to? How are they the same and how are they different?
0: So they are the same in the sense that you just described. Okay, willpower is the power that you use to motivate yourself, to uh, get yourself to do something. But they are different in the sense that we often think about willpower in the literature as well as in uh, uh, lay language is self-control, okay, as, as overcoming yourself, as doing something that's hard to do that you don't want to do but that you can somehow get yourself to do, okay? Uh, self-control is required when you have goal conflict when there is a goal that you want to pursue but there is something else that stands in the way that you really want to do you you think that you should eat one thing but you want to eat the other thing Uh, you think that you should control your temper but you're tempted to just express how you feel these situations exist they are uh, not the entire field of motivation and often uh, the situations that we are aware of because we are already failing, because it's already hard. In in a way, we, we think about willpower uh, when we are already struggling, when we already have something that goes uh, against us, whereas many of the goals that we uh, set uh, uh, are just intrinsically uh, motivating. And, uh, are just set such that we are excited about doing them. If we plan everything right, then we will be less aware of willpower and it will be more like something that we do either because it's a habit uh, or because it's exciting, it's fun, it's part of uh, my purpose, uh, what I want to achieve as a person.
1: So, I mean, I'm thinking in terms of So many people are swimming in a sea of distractions and stimuli, right? So, whether it's the stream of news or games or whatever that's available on your phone, or whether it's the things that are available on television, or just particularly in this world, in the world of constant media that's available at the faucet, so to speak, that especially young people, they seem to just let hours and hours go by. And they don't seem to be in pursuit of goals. They just seem to be in pursuit of getting through the next 30 seconds with some stimulus. And so in that case, if someone knew that they were trapped in a sort of addictive spiral like that, would it be better for them to psychologically focus on, hey, I got to stop doing this. I got to lock up the phone or I need to find some pursuit that is so... Attractive to me that I don't even notice or I'm not even aware of the temptations
0: Yeah, I would say that the latter <laughs> So there are uh, many things that we try to avoid in our daily life and social media is definitely a big one <laughs> How do I uh, get it off my phone and focus on uh, what's important for me? Uh, what's more uh, valuable? <laughs> the problem is that if you set your goal as avoiding okay, as don't look at your phone. Don't think about uh, something. Don't drink something. Don't eat something. The mere goal brings to mind the thing that you should not do. Okay. When I right. set my goal as not going on social media, the way for me to know that I am successful is by asking, where are you on social media? And by that, bringing this to mind. And so it's kind of hard to pursue these goals where the way to check yourself is by reminding yourself of the thing that you are trying not to do. The other problem with uh, avoidance goals, with the don't do uh, goals, is that they elicit reactions. We are often uh, rebels. We, We want to do something just because we are not allowed to do that. Even if we are the people who said that you are not allowed to do that, it, uh, some people have this feeling when you decide to go on a diet and immediately you're so tempted by all the things that you resolve not to eat. Okay, it, it, You're rebelling against yourself. By the way, you can use this for good. <laughs> I'm being reminded of a uh, Chris Bryan's uh, research that used reactants to get teenagers to reject junk food and uh, what he did in his studies was telling teenagers that marketers want them to eat junk food. And mm-hmm. there was all like these marketing campaigns trying to, yeah. to get you to eat the food that's unhealthy for you and, and then get the reactants uh, uh, response, but no, going back <laughs> to your question. The problem with avoidance goals is that they make us uh, rebels, they bring to mind a thing that you should not do, <laughs> and they're just not fun to pursue. So find another hobbies is better than stop obsessing on your current hobby.
1: But you also talk about kind of hands tying a little bit later in the book, where it seems like there are certain people that know how to I don't know, constrain their choice going forward so that the range of choices (laughs) include only the things that are in pursuit of the goal. So, for instance, with the phone, it would be putting the phone on silent mode or putting the phone somewhere that's harder to reach or doing something that would reflect some awareness of the fact that a lot of the activity is unchosen. How do people become better at that? Is that something that people become educated about or how do people learn to control themselves in that way is i think one of the examples you used is someone who you notice that some people will push the wine glass away from themselves and pull the water glass towards themselves which is a subtle way of leveraging the fact that people reach unthinkingly for the thing that's closer to them
0: yes and you can describe all of these strategies as Basically, making that goal more likely and the temptation less likely. Okay, and so you can, know, uh, buy more of the food that you want to eat and little of the food that you don't want to eat. So you increase the presence of one and reduce the, uh, the presence of others. Uh, you can. Pre-commit, and you started with a uh, now an example of pre-commitment to uh, uh, avoiding temptations by uh, putting that the phone away. Okay, or in my book, I give the example of deleting uh, the, the phone number of someone that you don't want to be in touch with. By uh, an economics uh, analysis, just having the number there doesn't mean that you need to contact the person. It's an added option that you don't have to use. And presumably, having options should not be a problem because you can always choose not to use these options. But by a psychological analysis, we know that uh, there are certain uh, uh, people that we might be tempted to uh, get in touch. And they are unhealthy for us. I give the example of trying to uh, end a relationship that is unhealthy for the person. And so you will delete the previous partner's uh, contact information so that this is no longer an option. This is a commitment to avoid someone. We also see in studies that uh, people are getting closer to those that help them achieve their goals. Okay, so uh, students are very strategic in choosing friends that will help them do well in school. Good students are popular because these are the people that will help you in your life. Moving away from some people and approaching other people, uh, moving away from some foods and approaching other foods are all self-control strategies that are meant to take a goal and temptation that have a similar appeal and make the temptation significantly less appealing or less available than the goal. How much uh, uh, people are aware of it? We find that they don't really need to be aware of it in order to do it. And so somehow in their development, uh, uh, people learn to do that. Uh, By the way, also animals sometimes display similar behaviors, so it doesn't seem like you really need high-level cognition in order to display some self-control, okay, some application of these strategies. Uh, but we hope that as people develop, as they learn, they can better plan. You know, they are better able to do that. Let me also add something about habits. That We know that habits work well. Okay, You know that once you made something into a habit, then often it's going to happen by itself. But then Many behaviors are never completely habitual. And so, while brushing your teeth is probably completely habitual, you don't need any willpower in order to get yourself to do that in the morning. Going to the gym, even if you are going on most mornings and you've been doing it for many years, is something that's much easier to drop. And that, in a way, if you don't constantly reinforce the habit, it can. disappear from your life uh, uh, more easily than uh, uh, brushing your teeth, for example. And so so you you get uh, these behaviors where they constantly need to be supported. You constantly need to do something to motivate yourself to follow through.
1: You didn't use the term, but I think of them as self-nudging. You're using the nudge principle on yourself to some extent by making the path of least resistance the thing that you most want to achieve. But you also talk about, and again, I don't think you used the term self-signaling and this idea that if you're doing something, well, you know, you, you, you must like it. And sometimes the best way to get the ball rolling is just to start. You talk about some interesting research about how people don't necessarily know what they like. And so they can be manipulated into liking certain things the way Tom Sawyer did but they can also manipulate themselves into liking things and kind of tom sawyering themselves right
0: yes and uh, well first uh, we can think about uh, self managing i didn't use this expression, but I kind of like it. We do nudge ourselves. And uh, uh, we know from basically research that goes all the way to the beginning of social psychology as a field that people uh, become to like what they do. That that The processes such as dissonance and self-perception lead us to appreciate the things that we invested in. And, and, And so often the way to get yourself to do something is by first doing it and then learning to to like it mm-hmm. okay and the idea is that when you do something you ask yourself why am i doing it okay like why, why am i working so hard to get this graduate degree uh, or uh, to uh, launch this successful product at work and you become more committed by the fact that you look back and see yourself doing that And uh, and this is another nice example of behaviors that we would consider maybe fallacies, maybe healthy motivational tools. And this is the sunk cost effect, right? So sunk cost is considered a bias. You're not supposed to be working on something just because you invested in the past. Uh, You should look at what you expect to get. From doing that uh, activity, from pursuing the goal, and this is uh, all all that matters. You should not be in a a relationship just because you've been in this relationship for many years. You should think about how do you value having this relationship moving forward, for example. But some cost results from a very effective motivational uh, tool, which is that as we do something, we develop our commitment, which allows us to stick to some goal for a long time, which allows us to uh, keep doing our work when we don't see uh, immediate uh, uh, rewards. Uh, Keep working on a paper that's uh, really hard to publish or that uh, the studies take forever to run. And and you stay committed because you think, well, I've already invested in this for two years. I might as well uh, continue for a third year. And and this is a motivational tool. This is a uh, learning from your uh, uh, commitment. Uh, you mentioned self-signaling. Self-signaling is often a, a motivational tool that refers to doing something because I want to be the kind of person that pursue this goal. Okay, And so the reason to pursue goals is often because there are certain rewards associated with it. Okay, I might uh, I want to, to get a job as, as a professor because I want to be employed. And I think that it's is a, an, an amazing uh, job to have. It's a wonderful uh, uh, lifestyle. Self-signaling is the other motivation which comes from how that reflects on the self. Maybe mm. it's not about the rewards. It's about how I'm going to see myself, okay? So I want to do it because it reflects well on me as a person. I I want to think of myself as someone who's going to be a a professor or an academic. And there are some studies that separate between these motivations. One nice example is you manipulate whether people think that they will remember their action, okay? If you think that you're going to have a good memory of what you did, then you're more likely to do it if you are like, thinking about the self-signaling, okay? uh, if, if you think about how that reflects on who you are as a person. Uh, but whether you will remember your action or not really doesn't matter for the rewards that you're going to get from this action. So m- Maybe this is a bit abstract. Let me give you an example. Uh, whether you would choose the, the healthiest snack over the unhealthy snack If you are more likely to choose the healthy snack over the unhealthy snack when you expect to remember your action, for example, when it's like your first choice in the day, okay, as opposed to some choice in the middle, then we would conclude that you are mostly driven by self-signaling, okay? You want to think of yourself as a health-conscious individual because eating healthy food will have the same impact on your body regardless of whether it's in the morning or at noon
1: now i always wonder with these healthy snacks you always use chocolate as the unhealthy and i'm always a little concerned about this because i always thought that chocolate was healthy you guys must be using some terrible chocolate as an unhealthy uh, option but in terms of some cost fallacy i use this all the time i'll sign up for subscriptions for instance to the opera or to the symphony or to the theater because on any given friday night after a long day of work i'm not particularly thrilled to go out but because i spent that money on those tickets, I'm gonna go. And so it's totally irrational for me to do it simply because I spent the money. But I know that I'm, I behave that way. And so I leverage that to become the, the person that I wanna be or to do what I think is in my best interest in, in the long run. People do this all the time.
0: Okay, first about chocolate, okay? <laughs> we, not only we don't decide what people think is healthy or unhealthy, uh, we often disagree. Like I I have have a study in which people were choosing whether to eat raisins or some chocolate and the participants in our study thought that raisins are healthy, okay, that this is fruit and chocolate is unhealthy. I personally don't think that there is anything in particular healthy about raisins. So I'm just uh, interested in how people resolve self-control conflicts, how they choose their food. We have now a lot of work in how people think about healthy food. And we often disagree Like people think about healthy food as unprepared. It's the food that is served without spices. I don't think that there is anything that makes food healthier when you remove the spices, but I study how people think about food and how they make their choices. And then you are describing the tendency to. uh, Highbrow activities uh, and purchases uh, long term in advance, which is interesting. Like how we need to pre-commit ourselves to have an experience that we know that we will value, uh, but we might not want to initiate in the moment. And uh, your example about pre-committing to uh, going to the theater is wonderful. It shows how much it's often easier to exercise self-control in advance. Okay? Uh, in, in my research, I refer to this as counteractive self-control. You counteract the temptation before it's actually there, okay? You decide to go to the theater before it's actually a Tuesday at 6 p.m. and you are tired and you just want to watch TV. This is a, the one example. Other example is that like when we just remind people that there will be temptations, mm-hmm. that the situation is going to be tense, then they are less likely to lose their temper, that there will be a lot of alcohol in the party. They are less likely to uh, drink too much. Uh, if you know that there is going to be a problem, it's like if you know that the box is going to be heavy and you're going to lift it, like your body is like preparing to physically lift it, your mind metaphorically does the same. Okay? If we know that something is going to be hard, we can better handle this in advance than when it's hard without a warning.
1: I love that example that you made about how people tend to think that food is healthier if it's bland and unpleasant. And as somebody who cooks a lot, I find this makes no sense at all empirically, but I think it taps into what you talk about as sort of the dilution principle or over-justification effect. And I found this fascinating because in the world of marketing, You think, oh, if I just add more and more features and I say, not only is it a floor cleaner, but it's also a mouthwash, then, you know, you'd expect to sell more. But the implications of your research is that, no, actually you're going to sell less because people don't want something that works for everything. If I say, I've got a moisturizer that works on your eyelids and your turkey neck, then you think, well, it can't be very good at either one, right? So first of all, I'm interested in the categories, where these categories come from, but why is it that we do that? Is it, in economics terms, it's almost as if everyone thinks that we're on the Pareto frontier all the time and that there's no win-win available. And indeed, if everything already was on the Pareto frontier, then the only way to get more in one dimension is to give up in the other dimension. But we spend so much of our lives inside the frontier that when someone comes along and says, hey, it's faster and cheaper and better. Sometimes it's true, but people are suspicious.
0: I'm still stuck on your example of a mouthwash that you can use to clean the floor. I am pretty sure that this is going to be a terrible marketing idea. It's from an
1: old Saturday Night Live skit in the 1970s. I remember some fake (laughs) ad that they had on TV.
0: Yes, we know that this is not going to work. And this is exactly because of the delusion principle that if a means, an, an object, a product, an activity serves two goals, then you assume it is less instrumental for each of these goals. The psychology underlying it is pretty simple. It is less likely to bring to mind that goal, okay? So mm-hmm. the, the delicious, healthy food that you have made is less likely to bring to mind healthy food, okay, or so the health category, and maybe also less likely to bring to mind that the delicious category, okay, delicious food and therefore it might seem less instrumental to each of them now of course this is a mistake in the sense that you know this is an inference that you make based on the strength of association between the means here and the goal uh, but in theory a means can serve two goals Uh, Mm. there is no uh, reason to think that if a food is healthy it's not tasty or if a food is tasty it's uh, uh, unhealthy When it gets to to products design, it's often something that companies are are giving a lot of thought of. Like, how Mm -hmm. can you keep it in the same category? And how can you expand the category without diluting your identity? And there are many successful examples. The smartphone has like a bunch of categories uh, in it that we have now as a society, as people uh, categorized under a smartphone. And so the, the same thing that I use to make calls, I also use as my calendar and it uh, it seems as one function. But, you know, it takes some education, it takes time, it takes like realizing what new categories can be created. At any given time, there are many goals that we see as, as conflicting or at least as you no know, incongruent to some extent like mention health and taste we also see uh, they you know something that is is like pleasurable versus uh, important that people say if it's important then i might not enjoy it as much and, like you see these conflicts i now as i talk about it i'm uh, being reminded of the all the advertisement for cough medicine that went something like it's awful and it works, okay? Like it tastes awful and it works. And the idea was that we know that people think that medicine that's bitter is more effective. Mm -hmm. And people also think that this is newer data, that mouthwash that stings Mm -hmm. is better, okay? (laughs) And so these are like uh, uh, counter-final activities, okay? Uh, So multi-final activities are activities that serve several goals at the same time. It's like in my book, I refer to this as uh, feeding two birds with one scone because I don't like killing birds. And they they are presumably the activities that we should look for, okay? Uh, Maybe we should walk to the gym instead of driving to the gym so that we uh, get our exercising and. our way there in the same activity, but people often behave as if they want to separate and the reason is that they believe that an activity is uh, uh, less instrumental for one goal if it's instrumental for the other goal
1: like kosher ice cream
0: yeah the question is i I, let me know i use the example of driving to the gym and like trying to find a parking spot that is the closest to the door which we often do and it's like now when we think about it, it doesn't make sense because obviously i'm a person that wants to exercise why do i park very close to the entrance to the gym. The kosher ice cream is another one. Uh, and this is uh, Itamar uh, Simonson's uh, uh, study from the 90s, uh, that reminding people that uh, an ice cream is kosher made them think that it doesn't taste very good. It decreased their interest to the extent that they didn't care for kosher. No, just adding that goal made people conclude that they, this ice cream is probably not so great in terms of taste okay the other goal is being compromised
1: but doesn't that pose a bit of a puzzle right so suppose i want to be someone who is fit so i want to exercise a lot now i know that if i pick a fun exercise i'm more likely to do it but if i pick an unfun exercise then i'll maybe be able to convince myself that i am more diligent in pursuit of my goal is there any downside to picking the fun exercise? Will I, my motivation be undermined in some way because I'll doubt that I'm actually pursuing the goal of fitness?
0: Yeah, this is great. So there, there are a couple of advantages for the unfun exercise. One is that it seems more instrumental. Okay? If you hate it, you assume that it's really great for your body. And the other one is that we talked about self-signaling. It's a great signal that you care about exercising. We know that runners see themselves as tour runners when they run in uh, Chicago in uh, like a cold winter day, okay? Not when they are uh, running in Berkeley on a, a nice uh, spring day. But, and this is a a big but, what predicts adherence to exercising is intrinsic motivation, which is really how much people enjoy that at the moment. And so despite the fact that doing something that doesn't feel comfortable might make you feel that this was very important for you and a great exercise, you're actually less likely to come back again and then to do it maybe four times a week. And, uh, and so overall, I would say uh, uh, that's not a great strategy, finding an exercise that you enjoy doing. Or not even increasing variety, okay, what you enjoy doing yesterday might be boring uh, uh, today, is really the way to get people to stick with the exercising goal.
1: Now, I think one of the more interesting parts of your book is the, your contribution to the millennium-old debate about kind of half-full versus half-empty. This has been a debate, not whether it is half-full or half-empty, but how you should look at things. Should you focus on what has been accomplished to date, or should you focus on the distance ahead of you to achieve the goal? And And I think this ties in many ways to the idea that proximity to the goal is going to be in proximity to the starting point these things influence your motivation and you talk a bit about the deadly middle or there's sort of some spot where your motivation is probably kind of lowest could you talk a bit about this seems like there's an entire field of motivation research you could spend your entire lifetime just focusing on this one domain within motivation science
0: So there are a few things here. First, that with progress, motivation increases. Okay, so... You no, know, in, in, in general, we see that the more people do, the more motivated they are. Okay, most people who drop out college do it in the first or second year, not when they're about to finish. Most consumers who are enrolled in a loyalty program drop the loyalty program after making one purchase, not when they are one purchase away from them. We would, and there is a good reason. You get more for your uh, effort the more progress you have made. Uh, your last year in college is getting you a full college degree. Your first year in college is getting you... of a college degree, of a four-year college degree. uh, There is just more that you get for your effort the more progress you have made, if it's an all or nothing.
1: If it's a discontinuous reward structure, then that's certainly true, right?
0: Yes. Uh, Now, we also see that with progress, uh, there is often more motivation for open-ended goals. And we discussed it before, your first uh, Uh, Exercise might uh, feel difficult. It's a new exercise. But then after you did it a few times, you uh, learn to like it. You look at yourself and you say, I guess I'm a committed swimmer. I'm going to uh, continue uh, swimming in my local swimming pool and, and so on. But we also see that often... When people make progress, they use it as as a license to disengage, okay? They feel like they have done enough, Mm -hmm. okay? And uh, so when I look back and I say, well, I've been working so hard uh, today or this week, maybe I should uh, take some time off. Maybe when I consider the times that I already exercised, I feel like I've exercised enough. I I don't need to to do it uh, today. And then the glass half empty becomes more motivating. okay, and, and then it's looking at the times that I haven't exercised or the things that I didn't do at work that's more motivating. And now we are getting to the interesting question of how should you monitor your progress, should you look back and say, I've done that much, or look ahead and say, here's everything that I can still do. And to make things really um, simple and probably oversimplified, uh, if you are new to something, if you are not committed, then it's better to look back and say, oh, I've already done some. If you're already committed, definitely if you are beyond the Like the 50%, if it's an all or nothing goal, then it's better to look ahead at what you still need to do. Okay, And the idea is that looking back makes you more committed. And if that was the issue, if you didn't know whether you're truly committed to this thing, then look back, think about what you have done, that will increase your commitment. If you're already committed, now you're more sensitive to how much progress you're making and highlighting the your father from your goal like that makes you want to make this uh, uh, extra progress either way there is a problem in the middle okay <laughs> because at the beginning there is an, an enthusiasm of the beginning and like any progress will feel relatively fast okay I was at zero percent and I am already at five percent or ten percent toward the end again like, you are uh, almost there and Again, this is to the extent that the goal has an end, okay? That it's all or nothing uh, goal. Then you know it's my last in college, okay The last purchase before I get the reward. Uh, people are excited about finishing their goals and in the middle this is when uh, we see a problem and we see it when we look at physical performance, when we look at like runners or swimmers, they slowing down in the middle. When we uh, look at uh, at students, uh, the middle of the quarter is uh, usually when they are more likely to skip class or uh, skip their their homework and even... No, for our own uh, ongoing goals, like the middle of the week, uh, the middle of the day.
1: The hump day.
0: Yeah. And so the solution is probably to keep middle short.
1: So you talk about cutting corners and how people tend to be less ethical in the middle. And maybe they're thinking that whoever's observing their work isn't going to notice because it's buried in the middle. Maybe they themselves think that they're not going to notice because it's buried in the middle. So... When you say make the middles short, does that mean to subdivide the progress bar, so to speak, to provide intermediate, almost artificial completions along the way so that you can say, yeah, okay, I've completed. I think in terms of in in American football, when you go 10 yards, you get a new set of downs. So it's, oh, I've got a fresh start. Like I'm done. There's first, second, third down, and now it's first down again. So by slicing the field up into... These ten yard increments, you're almost making those middles much much shorter than they would be otherwise, right?
0: Yes, you nicely uh, illustrated another two problems with middles. Not only we are doing less, okay, we are also cutting corners, okay. That is, we are uh, doing things uh, less in the right way, okay? We are less ethical, and we are less ethical and less likely to adhere to our performance standard, both because we think that other people will not notice and we think that we will not remember. if, If I don't remember what I do in the middle, then I don't need to pay attention.
1: You mentioned on vacations, people remember the first day and the last day more than they remember middle day.
0: Yes, and, and so you need, like, your first and last day to do something special, right, in the middle. If you don't think that you will remember, then you don't care so much. Uh, uh, we did one study with uh, a to artillery where uh, we gave people a piece of paper with shapes on it and mm-hmm. a pair of scissors to cut these shapes, and they were literally cutting corners in the middle. <laughs> <Right>. Okay. <laughs> But you know, when, when you uh, talk about the solution of uh, c- cutting the, the goal to uh, sub-goals, I think that, yeah, we all do it all the time. Take savings, savings for retirement. It's a really long-term goal. Okay? But we often think about how much we save this year, okay? So we make dozens of years goal <laughs> into uh, maybe a one-year uh, uh, sub-goal, which is probably still too long. It's probably better to think about savings in terms of a monthly goal. Exercising. Uh, We are encouraged to monitor how much we exercise per day. Okay, so we have a daily goal. What does it mean? And of course, like tomorrow will be another daily goal, and every day I I want to exercise, but I don't think about how much I work out this year or this decade. I think about how much I uh, work out uh, today, which is uh, uh, a sub goal that has uh,
1: no middle. But you also talk about the what the hell effect, right? Which is you miss a goal if you have a all or nothing goal then missing it by a little and missing it by a lot shouldn't make a whole heck of a lot of difference so if you really say i need to do this i need to lose 10 pounds i'm not going to be happy with 9 pounds i'm not going to be happy with 9.9 pounds i got to lose 10 pounds then as soon as you realize it's not going to happen then psh, why not miss by By 10 pounds. How do you then all of a sudden switch back to convincing yourself that 9.9 is better than seven when you had spent all this time trying to convince yourself that you needed to make it to 10? If you could switch back and forth between those two perspectives, then it would make the all or nothing way of thinking more difficult to sustain, no?
0: yeah and you highlight one of the problems with goals okay so we set goals that are uh, ambitious we set goals that we don't know if we can reach this specific target okay we don't know if we can do like this much by that time and we did that on purpose okay the challenging target is better than the target that we know we can achieve for sure. But the problem is that once we fail on that target, then we might give up, okay? We might say whatever, like what the hell, okay? The day is ruined or maybe that the goal is is ruined. Uh, There is a a nice study that looks at the distribution of marathon times in in the US. It's like almost 10 million uh, marathon times. Devin Popp and uh, George Wu, who are my colleagues here uh, at the University of Chicago, were on that paper uh, with more authors. And uh, if you look at the distribution of marathon times, there are many more people in the U.S. that finish a marathon just below four hours than just above four hours. Okay, mm-hmm. So the distribution is not smooth. Now, it's a nice demonstration of the motivating effect of goal setting because many marathon runners want to achieve their goal under four hours, okay, finish the marathon under four hours, there are many people there, but it's interesting to note that when you see that there are very few people that are finishing the marathon just over four hours, it's possible that at least some of them, once they realize that they are not doing it under four hours, they gave up, and now they are taking some extra time, okay, and now they are not finishing in four hours and two minutes, because if I cannot finish it under four hours, I might as well finish it in four hours and, I don't know, 20 or uh, uh, 30 uh, uh, minutes. We see this uh, with food all the time, that if people just miss it by a little, they completely uh, go uh, off track and just eat whatever is in the fridge. Uh, uh, We see that with exercising, people that have a step count, they would really care about Getting to the 10,000 steps a day. So, mm. if they're just 100 steps below that, they will walk around their bedroom uh, trying to, to get the last 100 steps. Uh, But if if the day is ruined, if let's say I did like a flight uh, uh, that day, which means that my step count is going to be pretty low, uh, then they don't even bother. Okay, that if I can't get to ten thousand, I might as well just sit in my chair for the entire day. Which is the downside of uh, uh, goal setting that when you give up, you might be really giving up.
1: You see the same thing with corporate earnings, right? So when you beat earnings announcement, you beat them by a penny, when you beat forecasted earnings. But when you miss it, you you can miss it by a lot. So the last thing I want to ask you about is emotions. And you talk about how important emotions are. And of course, emotions can be created by the judgment of others, right? So as managers, we think a lot about, do you want to motivate your employees with fear or love? But the same applies when you're trying to motivate yourself, right? So if you make yourself feel really bad, okay, that's going to have a certain impact. And if you make yourself feel really good, and the area where I think you dig deep into this is how negative feedback uh, affects people and how it can either be a motivator or a demotivator, depending in part on the emotional impact that it has. If we're trying to motivate ourselves, how can we leverage our emotions? Is it okay to make yourself feel bad for failing to perform is there a good way to do that how do you use positive and negative feedback on yourself to inspire motivation
0: so uh, emotions in motivation science we often think about emotions as feedback system and I often find it confusing because emotions can be the goal in its own, okay. Like many people say, like, that my goal is to like feel happy, but uh, I believe that it's more accurate to think about happiness, pride, or satisfaction, or uh, anxiety, or fear, or depression as feedback uh, how are you doing in your life, and how should you change what you're doing or keep it up. And the extent to which you have emotions such as uh, regret or pride that. Usually, directly about how well you are doing on your goals. Okay, like regret means that you didn't do something that you thought you should have done. Okay, so that's a cue to to engage in this behavior. Uh, pride is the signal, the internal signal that you are doing well on your self control goal. Okay? so you you did something that was more uh, important that you prioritized over another goal. So both are informative, but what? We find in general is that people are struggling to learn from negative feedback and specifically from negative emotions. Several reasons for that. When it gets to negative emotions, often what you do is take care of the emotion and not the goal.
1: Deflect it, right?
0: Yeah. Okay. That means if I'm trying not to feel bad, I might not pursue the goal. I might just uh, find a shortcut.
1: Or you might cover up the signal which leading to the negative Emotion. So, if you're dealing with the work situation, if you see an email where you think that someone's going to be giving you a hard time for your work, you just don't open it.
0: Yes. Okay. So you can ignore it in the first place, right? You can ignore negative feedback by uh, knowing that it's coming and never opening the email. You can also find shortcuts to improve your mood, right? I Acceptance mean, like abuse. There are ways in which you can improve our mood that don't actually address the goal. There are also like, two specific barriers to learning from negative feedback. Uh, one is that it hurts, and the other one is that it's often hard, just cognitively, to learn from negative feedback. The hurting part is easy to understand. Okay? When we fail or when we get negative feedback, it, it just it stings. Okay? It, it's one reason, by the way, why we sometimes learn more from others' failures than from our own. Yeah, when I like, observe that uh, you are uh, messing up, Uh, It's easy for me to learn. Uh, When I mess up, I might disengage. Uh, But also, cognitively learning from failure is often hard because it requires learning what not to do. It's learning by elimination. And this extra cognitive step, if that's not the right way, then I should look at the other way, is uh, often uh, a huge barrier. Uh, we did you know, studies in which we ask people in a world in which there are three options. Okay, there's like big success, small success, and small failure. What do you want to know? Okay, uh, uh, do, do you want to experience like the that? No, that, that small success or the small failure? So presumably, we cannot tell you where the big success is. If you're not one of the other two, then you can kind of by elimination figure out where to go. And uh, what we find is that many people say that they want to learn about the small success. Uh, uh, where is the correct answer? Is that you want to know about the small mm-hmm. failure? Okay, if you know about where the small failure is, now you have a better chance at getting the big success because you. Will now be randomly choosing between small success and a large success, but people don't quite take this extra step. Okay, they, they don't think about the information that was in the failure, and so they they don't explore it. They don't want to get this information. Mm-hmm. We also find that people don't share information now on failure with other people, and probably because you know, it's uh, not something that uh, the people proud of. They don't want to broadcast uh, things that didn't work well, but what it means that there was just less information that we can learn from. Okay, there is just less in the market of ideas. Okay, and the wisdom of the crowd. There is less information on learning from failure because people don't talk about it.
1: So you know, here in Silicon Valley, venture capitalists are always evaluating founders and ideas. And I think when I. Ask them, what are they looking for? It seems like in, in many cases, what they're really looking for is a founder that has the right kind of motivation. And when you dig deep into that, and say, what exactly are you looking for? They say, I want someone who is going to, essentially walk through walls and is willing to light themselves on fire in order to achieve a goal. And you say, oh, so you want someone who's stubborn and someone who is going to ignore bad feedback and ignore the pitfalls on the way. And they say, no, no, actually we want them to be flexible and, and be willing to pivot all the time. And so when you're trying to figure, well, how can you have somebody who wants to walk through walls to achieve a goal, but is also willing to abandon goals and pivot all the time? I think it lines up in many ways with what you're describing, which is really the ability to understand how to define and understand goal formation in a way that facilitates flexibility on the way to the achievement of those goals.
0: Yes, and I like this story because you really want that the person that is learning from there are setbacks, that expect many setbacks. And so we know that either in Silicon Valley in in developing uh, technology uh, or in science, uh, uh, you have a lot of setbacks. Most of your uh, ideas, or at least most of the ways in which you test your ideas, are going to uh, lead to uh, nowhere. And the question is whether the person is learning from that. Now, learning from that, the fear is that what you learn is that you cannot, okay, that, that will never work. So learn helplessness is also learning, okay? Learn helplessness is when you learn that you cannot do this, okay? That because I gave you a negative feedback on whatever. You took my class in social psychology and you got negative feedback. You learn that you can never be a social psychologist. Uh, This is learning, but the wrong kind of learning. This is an overgeneralized belief that you cannot do something. This is something that Martin Seligman uh, showed many years ago, uh, led uh, uh, dogs not to avoid electric shocks because they had the bad experience of being in an environment in which you couldn't control electric shocks. Between that overgeneralized learning and not learning anything which is just ignoring failures and not doing that like the, the elimination process that I just described. That I just learned about one way in which that doesn't work. You get a healthy learning, which is there is uh, still a lot to explore. There is still a lot uh, to do here. I just discovered what doesn't work, and I'm going to try the next thing that might uh, work or not. And you know, the people that, uh, that you talk to in Silicon Valley, if they know what they are looking for, then hopefully it's that person.
1: Ailet, thank you so much for joining me. The book here is Get It Done! Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation. It really walks through quite a wide range of interesting insights and studies. Thanks for joining me.
0: Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure.
1: Thank you for tuning in to the
0: Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes,